read from Revelation 7, and I'm going to read verses uh, 15, 14 uh, to the end of that chapter. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. God, we are so grateful for your word that you have preserved for us through the ages. And now as we open up your word, we ask for your Holy Spirit to come and give us ears to hear and eyes to see so that our lives may be transformed with the hope of Jesus Christ in this morning hour. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, there were three couples who approached the pearly gates. And the first couple came up to the pearly gates and the husband said, well, St. Peter, we are here and uh, we want to get in. St. Peter looked at the husband and he said, oh, I'm sorry. You're not gonna be able to get in the, the pearly gates because for all of your life, you've really had your heart set on food. And so much so that you searched until you found a wife who was named Candy. The second husband stepped up and said, well, St. Peter, we, we would love to get into uh, heaven. And St. Peter said to the husband, he goes, well, no, sorry. You are not going to be able to get into heaven because your whole life, you've devoted it to, to one thing, and that was to earning and accumulating money. So much so that you searched until you found a wife whose name was Penny. <laughs> the third husband grabbed his wife's hand gently and began to walk away and said, come on, Fanny, we're never gonna get in. <laughs> well, fortunately for us this morning, we don't have fears about standing at the, at the gate, standing at the, the door of heaven, because in our Bible reading this week, John takes us through those doors of heaven. If we look at chapter 4, starts out with these words. John says, after this I looked and behold. And, and that word for behold in Greek means I see or I perceive. You know, I, I look with my eyes. So John is like, I, I looked and wow, there it was with my eyes. I saw this, a door standing open to heaven. Oh my goodness, how incredible would that be? A door standing open to heaven. I mean, I'd, I'd love that. I'd love to be able to see 
inside that door. And so John then heard the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet. Remember when the book opened, he heard this voice speaking to him like a trumpet. It's the voice of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says to him, come up here. Not only is there a door in heaven, but John, you're invited to come up here, come through this door and walk into heaven. That's a pretty cool vision. And that's what John sees in this second round of visions in Revelation. He's ushered through the door into the heavenlies. And as John comes into the heavenlies, he sees two things. His eyes go on two things. The first is this, at once I was in the spirit and behold, again, I saw, right? I perceived, I saw a throne that stood in heaven. That's in the center. In the very center of heaven is a throne. And notice that John doesn't describe the qualities of the throne, how beautiful the throne is, what the throne is made out of, because what is significant about this throne is the very next words that he says here in 4, verse 2, I saw a throne in heaven with one seated on the throne. The significance of the throne in heaven is that it is occupied. It is occupied by God. That is the significance, that there are the images of God sitting on the throne, sitting in the seat of power, sitting in the seat of authority, that he is king and he is ruler. This is an image that we're going to bump into almost 50 times as we make our way through the book of Revelation. This is what's central to this whole book, is that God is sitting on the throne. And then notice what John does. He doesn't begin to describe the features of the one sitting on the throne. Why? Well, it's God sitting on the throne. And God is too incomprehensible for us to understand. We cannot even grasp God and who he is and all that he is. And so what does John do as he begins to just give us some, some pictures and some textures and, and images of who God is? He goes back to the Old Testament and he's using images. He goes into the New Testament and he's using images. He takes all these images of the Bible and he collides them together there to describe the one on the throne so that when we walk away, we see the one on the throne and we go, oh my goodness, he is worthy. He is majestic. He is powerful. He is awesome. He is mighty. He is glorious. He is pure. He is righteous. And the list keeps going on and on because God is just too much for us to describe. But at the end of the day, John wants us to grab the words that they, they sang and uh, praised him with. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's who's sitting on the throne. The Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, and will be forevermore. That's who is sitting on the very throne of heaven. And then notice what happens. Unlike Emperor Domitian, who I told you had a temple built for himself and decreed that the people had to go to that temple and declare that he was Lord and God. And he put out a, 
a demand that the people had to show up to that temple and worship him and offer incense to him, declaring that he was worthy. And so they went under compulsion. They went reluctantly. They gave lip service to this worship to the emperor. We don't have that here with God, do we? What we see in this Revelation chapter 4 or 5 moving forward is over and over and over again pictures of worship, of praise, that every being, every being, the angels, all that's created, the full church, everything is bowing and worshiping God, and it says that the praise goes on day and night. You see, worship is not an action. Worship is a reaction to who God is. And it's all witnessed God on the throne, who he is, their reaction is only one thing. We need to worship him. And so I think if you struggle through your own worship, and your own worship of God may be a little dry and lackluster, I just want to encourage you to dig into your Bible, dig into the gospel story, and see who God is. And my hunch is your reaction will lead you to be one who gets down on their knees and falls prostrate before God and says, glory, glory to God. You are worthy. There is none other like you. And this is such good news for the church that's being persecuted. Those seven churches that this letter is written. I mean, think about this. They are facing this persecution because the one who is on the throne in Rome is causing them pain and suffering. But the good news is Domitian on that throne in Rome, he's not in charge. We got this peek behind the curtain. We see who is in charge, that it is God, that he is sovereign. And the psalm reminds us of that in Psalm 103:19. It says, the Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom over all. God is the ultimate authority. God has the ultimate power. God is the one who rules and God is in control. And that's a message of good news, I believe, for the seven churches and for us who live here today. So John not only sees a throne in heaven, but he also sees in chapter 5, the start of chapter 5, he says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. So John's still in the same place. He's in heaven. He looked and he sees all this worship going on. He sees God sitting on the throne. And then his eyes zoom in, close up, on the hand of the one who was on the throne. And he says, What I see in the one seated on the throne, I see a scroll that is written on the back and it's sealed with seven seals. John looks and he sees a scroll in the hand of the one on the throne. And the scroll in the one of the hand on the throne is all of God's decrees from the very beginning of time until the end. All that God has ordained in his sovereign will is written on the scroll and it's held where? In his right hand, which is his hand of power. 
Right hand always means a hand of power. God is holding his will, his decrees, what he has ordained from Genesis, from the time in the garden, through the cross, onto the judgment day that is to come. God has declared it. It's written on the front and it's written on the back. It is complete and done. There's nothing else to be added to it. And it is sealed with seven seals. And what's the significance of the number seven? <coughs> Excuse me. Completeness, wholeness. This is it. In God's hand, it's a done deal. Here's, here's it. Here's the complete package of what God is going to do. And it's sealed with seven seals. Now, by way of context, the seal in that day was a, uh, they started with a little piece of wax or clay, and then the person who was writing this, maybe it was an emperor, maybe it was a high official or something, or maybe just an average person, they would take their ring and they would stamp it into that wax, giving it a seal. And it would seal it shut, one, protecting it, right, so nobody can just sneak it open and take a peek at it, but also it was sealed shut until one who had the authority could open it. And this one is sealed with seven seals. The complete rule, the complete authority of God. And John zeroes in and he sees that in God's right hand. And then this is where our vision runs into a problem. Verse 2. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? As no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth is able to open the scroll and to look into it. There's nobody who's authorized. No being, right? In heaven above, on earth or earth below. Who can open these scrolls? who can unfurl, who can unroll the judgments of God that he is bringing into this land. There's no one. There's no one that is, is worthy. It can't be opened. And so what is John? What's his reaction? And I begin to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Why would John weep? I mean, think of John. He's, he was exiled on the island of Patmos because the emperor, Domitian, persecuted him for his faith. And if this scroll is not open, there's no justice. For those seven churches that are facing persecution, being beaten, being killed, if this scroll is not open, that's the end of their story. If the scroll doesn't open, pain doesn't stop. Justice doesn't prevail. Hope is not there. If the scroll isn't open, the enemy wins. Evil prevails. 
There's no new hope. There's no new earth. There's no new creation. You feel the depths of John's agony? But there's no one. No one who can open the scroll. And so all is lost. And he weeps loudly. But then, in the middle of all this weeping, we hear this. listeners right away because since the very beginning in Genesis 49 God said there is going to be a Messiah this is messianic language the one that I promised to you my people I promised I would be your God I promised that I would save you I promised that I would be faithful I won't leave you hanging and I didn't because I sent one the Lion of Judah and Judah was one of the tribes of Israel. And in Genesis 49, it says, Judah is like a lion cub. And God's people had that etched in their mind. And when they heard the lion of Judah, they're like, yeah, there's one who can take his claws and can rip through the seals and open it for us. And not only is he the lion of Judah, it says he is the root of David. More messianic language, more running in their ears. This is the promise of God. God is fulfilling his promise. He has kept a savior to us in the root of Jesse. The root of Jesse, we certainly know this, don't we, after Christmas with our children? Oh, Jesse tree, oh, Jesse tree. We learned it. We learn the root of David again that God would take one from the line of David who was king and another king would come. And they're saying right now, this Messiah is here and he is worthy to open the, open the scrolls. And John turns to see this lion, to see this king. And what does he see? He sees a lamb. Not only a lamb, but a lamb who was slain? Yes, 
because that's where the power of God is most displayed in the lamb who was slain. Remember, John the Baptist looked at Jesus and he said, Behold, the lamb of God who does what? Takes away the sin of the world. That's power, my friends. That's power. And there was no more power on display than when Jesus Christ was slain on the cross and he took on the punishment of sin and he took on the punishment of death and he rose again and defeated the enemy. And he crushed the head of the serpent just as God said he would do in Genesis 3. The power, the power of God is most seen on the cross. And so the power of the lamb, the power of the lion, what Jesus has done for us and who he is in winning victory and being the perfect one, being the son of God, he is able to take the scrolls and open them. And so he does. He begins to take the scrolls and he opens them. And John says, when he had taken, uh, I looked, and he took the scroll and he began, in chapter 6, the lamb began to open one of the seven seals. Now think about this. He's opening one of the seven seals. This is not unfurled until all seven seals are off it. As long as there's one seal on it, it's still sealed up. And so he begins to take these seals off and what we see at this point in John as he's moving through this is we are seeing what is happening, what has happened in the world and what is going on in the, in the judgments and in the order of God up to this point. All right? We're not moving into the future. God is saying this is how God is at work. This is what God is doing. And it's not until the seventh seal is let loose that this unfurls that we begin to get a picture into the judgments of God. And for that, you're going to have to move on to chapter 8 and come back next week. But right now, Jesus takes the seal and he begins to undo them. And he takes off one, he takes off two, he takes off three, he takes off four. We're going to lump those all together because those four are our lump together because they talk about what's going on here on our earth because of sin and rebellion. Quite often these four, when we talk about them uh, being unsealed, it's the four horsemen of the apocalypse, everybody likes to say. The four horsemen of the apocalypse. And so we have the four horsemen. We have the first one on the white horse, who is conquest, who is power. We have the red horse, which is strife and war. Think of slaughter and think of, of blood, the red horse. We have the black horse, which with the scales, which is scarcity and famine. And we have the pale or ashen horse, which is the color of a corpse, and we think of death. These are the four horsemen, and when we think of horses in the first century context, it was not peaceful. It was war. And so here are the four horsemen who are, who are at war in this world against people. Why? Because of their rebellion against God. Because of their sin against God. God is working his justice through these four horsemen. This is the same image that the prophet Ezekiel 
picked up on. He said it's sword, famine, wild beasts, and pestilence or plagues. And if you remember Jesus' words in his Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, Jesus talks about false prophets, wars, famine, and death. And so this makes sense to those who were hearing this word in the first century. Let's not analyze this too much and let's not get bogged down in the details too much here, but let us take it in as we see these four horsemen moving back and across the land and the world, conquest for power, taking things from people so there's scarcity, seeing people who are dying, seeing others who are caught up in war and murder and blood. And we see this going on in the land and God's people in the first century are like, yes, I see it, we see it, we know that this is the way it is. And we probably can look that today too, right? We can look and say, yes, this is what's going on in our world today. But while this is going on, as I said, there's judgment going on for people who have rebelled against God. This is kind of punitive for them. But for those of us who are in Christ, who are in the family of God, what's going on for us is often what the Bible refers to as it's purifying you. It's purifying you. Because at the end of the day, as we go through these challenges, as we face these difficulties, as we face the consequences of sin in our life, it begins to reveal within us whose we are. And as we sustain our relationship with God, drawing us closer to him, remembering that God said, I will never leave you or forsake you, that I am with you even though you walk through the valley of shadow of death. This is Romans 8:38, right here, that I will never, never leave you or forsake you, even if you're going through famine and you're facing the sword, I am right there with you. And that's what grows in our faith during this season. So there being the saints here, they're being purified. Remember, as I said, when you get squeezed, it reveals what's in the center of your life. And when we get squeezed in these times of difficulty, does it move us closer to God? Or does it make us put a hand up and say, forget you, God, and move away? This is a purifying experience, and we are told to persevere in our faith. We are told to persevere because the testing will lead, will lead and show the quality of your faith. It'll be refined. That's what's happening here as those horses are going through And then he takes off the fifth seal, which says, now we're moving our gaze off from earth. We're moving our gaze back to heaven. All right, he takes off the fifth seal. And I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Yeah, that makes sense, doesn't it? Because those people of God, as we're living in this world, And as we're living for God and we're giving our testimony to God and we're declaring that Jesus is Lord and not Domitian is Lord, and the world kills us or persecutes us for that, there we are as this evil is going on. And so we're in this world and these saints who have been martyred, these saints who are are living up in heaven, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, how long? 
How long before you judge and avenge our blood? That's a fair question, is it not? That is a really good question. Because God, I'm living here for you. God, I've faced the conquest. I've faced the war. I've gone through the hard times. I've gone through the persecution. And yet, you know what, God? You say that you're on the throne, and I believe you are on the throne, yet it seems like this evil is still going about. It seems like this evil is still maybe winning, and here we are all persecuted. How long, oh God, must we deal with this? That's a question that's been in the hearts of God's people for a long time. In the Psalms, Psalm uh, 77 says this, My heart, in my heart, this is uh, verse 7, uh, meditated and my spirit asked, Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? Those are questions that resonate in our hearts, I, and I hear them today from people over and over again. Why me? Why us? Why this? Why good people? Where is God? And these saints are calling out that same question to God. How long, oh God, must we deal with this? And God answers them. Because each of them says, we're given a white robe. They were given a white robe. The white stands for victory. The white stands for purity. The white stands for righteousness. That means we are unblemished. We are untouched by that sin. The white stands for being an overcomer. And God says, you know what? You know who you are? Even though all of this is going on, I don't need you to worry. I don't need you to worry because who you are? You're an overcomer. You are an overcomer. Why? Because where are they? Where do we find this group of people? Under the altar. Now again, we can see that this is symbolic, right? Because the place under the altar, this goes back to Leviticus. See, everything goes back to Leviticus, where they were given the sacrifices. And the altar sat there, and you would put the lamb on top of the sacrifice, and the blood all rained down and fell underneath the altar in that space underneath the altar is where John is saying that's where I see the saints they're under the altar and what is that spot a place where they literally are covered by the blood of the lamb they're covered by the blood of the lamb and because Jesus has them because Jesus is holding them he's the one who won victory over sin and death because he is covering them and protecting them, they are overcomers. And they're dressed in white. So look, that's who you are. So you don't worry about it, God says, because I'm in charge, and it's going to happen. Look what he says to them. You're going to rest a little longer. It's in God's hands. It's all in God's hands. 
the evil that is going about, they think they got freedom. They don't. God's corralling it. God's holding on to it. God's working out his purposes. And we who continue to be faithful, we who continue to live for Jesus Christ, to live in faith and endurance and obedience, at the end of the day, we don't need to question because right here, God says to us, you are dressed in white and you are an overcomer. And at the end, when all this evil is done, don't worry. I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha. you. That is incredible good news. And then we open the sixth seal. Our eyes go back down to earth. Okay? We're opening the sixth seal. We're back down to earth. And they see a great earthquake and the sun becoming black and the moon's like blood and the stars are falling to earth. The fig tree is shedding its winter fruit. The sky is vanishing. We got all this stuff going on on the earth. And when the first century people heard this, they went, that's apocalyptic literature. That's talking about what happens at the end. They didn't get embroiled in the details. They knew what it meant. It meant this is language that's telling us about the last judgment. This is language that's telling us about when God comes. And it's been in their writings throughout history. Much like if I say to you today, I go, once upon a time, you immediately know I'm telling you a story. I'm telling you a fable that is made up. They heard this, and it was part of their literature in the day, so they heard this and they knew, this is God talking about the end times. And I think the one thing we take away from this is that we see even the whole earth is under the consequence of sin and death. Even the earth, because God created it perfect, didn't he? He created it good, he created it holy. But because of sin, that even sin affected the earth. And here we see the earth is even under the judgment of God. And so that is, that is happening here as we see this going on. And so as this, this earth begins to fade away, we read these words here in verse 15. The kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free. All right, this is everybody. Those who thought they were all lit on this earth. This is Domitian. This is everybody who thought they had power, had money. What do they do on this great day of God? They run to the caves and they hide among the rocks of the mountains. And because they would rather have, they say, fall on us and hide us from the face of him. They would rather be buried under an earthquake than have to face God's judgment. That tells us something about the degree of God's judgment, doesn't it? I would rather be buried under rocks than have to look into the face of God because he's holy, he's just, he's righteous. And we know that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. I don't want to look into the face of God. And so they ask that question, who can stand? Right at the end there. Save us from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? That's a question we all have to wrestle with. Jesus said, I'm coming back, I'm returning, I am coming to judge this world, and when I do, the question is, who can stand? That's been what the Bible has been trying to answer that question from the very beginning. Who can stand? 
Well, you know who can stand? That's the answer in chapter 7. Who can stand? It's the people dressed in white. They can stand. The people dressed in white can stand because they are covered by the blood of the Lamb, because Jesus is holding them. And it's the people dressed in white can stand. And John gets a picture of this in two different ways. First, he looks and he sees, he sees that, uh, that the angels are holding back all that destruction that's going on because God says, I am going to seal my church. They're going to be saved from all this destruction. I'm going to seal my church. And we have the 144,000 there. And that 144,000 is symbolic of the whole church. That there's the Israel where God gave us promise to, and the church is now, uh, we are engrafted into what God was doing through the Jewish community, and we are one church, and God says to that whole church, he says in there, hold them back, uh, don't let them harm them, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. That's God writing his name on us. That's God. It's like when I went to camp and my mom in the tag of all my shirts wrote Bobby Carroll. So when they were all laying in the cabin with everybody's stuff at the end of the week, you could pick them up and go, oh no, this is, this is, this is mine. This belongs to me. And God marks each of us. And how are we marked? By the blood of Jesus Christ. By the blood of Jesus Christ. That's how we're saved. Remember back to the Exodus story. How were God's people saved? They marked the doorposts with the blood of the Lamb. In those doorposts that were marked with the blood of the Lamb, the angel of death passed over. It's the same thing here. We are marked, we are sealed with Jesus Christ, and when we're sealed with Jesus Christ, can evil, and can the evil one, and can the enemy hurt us? God says, no, because they're mine, and my spirit is in them, the spirit of victory, because they are dressed in white, and they are overcomers and john then turns and he sees the vision a second way of this same thing he sees a great multitude there's a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and from all peoples and all languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes it's a huge multitude who can stand the church of jesus christ from every nation from every tongue they're standing before the very throne of god with palm branches and this goes back to the to the festival of booths when people would remember their journey through the wilderness oh probably not a pleasant time because they faced the heat they faced being thirsty they went without food it was a tough and difficult time in the wilderness and in the desert and yet when they were done with that they celebrated with palm branches saying our god took us through all of that And that is who this group is because they ask in this next question, they said, who is this group? And they say, these are the ones who came through the tribulation. As they lived, and those horsemen are galloping all over the place, and the evil is going about, and it's it's destruction, it's persecution, it's, it's isolating those who are believers in Jesus Christ. My church continued to live through that. And they're covered by Jesus Christ. And so now they're standing by the throne. Why? Because verse 10 says, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne 
and to the Lamb. Who can stand? Only the one saved by God who sits on the throne. Oh, it's, it's not Domitian who's going to save them. It's not the Roman army who's going to save them. It's not the Republicans or Democrats who are going to save us, or Hollywood or Wall Street or anything else that's going to save us. It's only God who sits on the throne, and he does it by the decree of what happened through the Lamb. And when we're covered by the Lamb's blood, we're sealed, we're held for victory, and we're dressed in white, and we're overcomers. That's who can stand. So we got, through, we got through six seals. We're now up to the seventh seal, which means we're going to unfurl the judgments of God. We've been waiting for this time, haven't we? We've been waiting to see. Here it comes. The judgments of God are going to be unfurled. And it said, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, oh, this is going to be good. You ready? There was silence. God's plans are unfurled. His justice is unfurled. And it's silent. I think it's silent because of the weight of what was ready to happen. The weight of God's judgment is huge. I mean, imagine all of a sudden, we, we read all, like four or five times about all this praise and worship going on in heaven, and now suddenly it's the time for judgment, and all that praise and worship just shuts down. It's silent. I mean, think of that moment when DeMar Hamlin was hurt during the Buffalo Bills football game, and you had a stadium that was rocking, you know, with 60,000 people, cheering, screaming. He got hurt. They knew something serious was going on. And that stadium became quiet. It was eerily quiet. That many people standing silent. And I think there's silence here. Because all in heaven know about what's to, what's to happen. It's the judgment of God coming on the land, coming on people. They feel the gravity of that. They feel the weight of that. And there is silence because God is God and he is going to do what is right and just. And it's a weight. It should be a weight for us. God came today. We have many friends, many family members, many people we know that wouldn't make it through because they're not standing in white. They're not covered by the blood of the Lamb. They're gone. They're heavy. They're getting the judgment of God. And here it comes. It says it's silent. And the prophets, the prophets continually warned us about this day. They said, the Lord is now in his holy temple. God's here to bring his judgment. Let all the earth keep silent before him.
today sitting in silence because we are humbly before your throne and we realize your perfection we realize your holiness we realize your worthiness and at the same time God we realize how far we have fallen short of your glory we sit here silent we sit here silent trusting that you will forgive us of our sins trusting in your promises that you made so long ago to your people that you would come and save us if we couldn't do it ourselves which we couldn't and so you sent the lamb of god into the world to save us and we are so grateful for that and we realize how much our sin is an affront to you and god maybe we've taken it too easy on ourselves God, we, we dabble in it, we meddle in it, we've endorsed it, we've brought it into our life. And yet all of that, God, mars who we are in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus says, we, the ones dressed in white, are his beautiful bride. And he rendered us through his sacrifices, blameless and holy and pure. And he tells us to present ourselves without blemish on that day. And yet, God, I know that when I show up on that day, I'm going to have some blemishes. So the only thing I can do is appeal to Jesus Christ to turn towards the Lamb and say, God, here I stand in faith, in hope, in trust, in victory as an overcomer because I'm standing here in Jesus Christ. And God, that is our prayer today that each of us would recognize that hope we have within us because of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And on that glorious day when you come, we will lean into you, where we will be safe, where we will be secure, and we have no need to worry. And so, God, we come out of the silence and we lift our heads victorious because we are the people dressed in white. We are the overcomers. And when people ask us, how can you stand? We say it's because of Jesus Christ. And in this day, and in this moment, forever and always, we lean into him. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Let's stand together as victorious people, dressed in white, and declare where our hope and our trust and confidence is found. Thank you, Pastor Bob. Let's praise his name together as we lean on his ever everlasting arms this morning.